Welcome to Stop Overthinking, the podcast for overthinkers, people pleasers, and perfectionists who want to feel calm and confident enough to handle whatever life sends your way. I'm your host, Kristen Odegaard, a women's life and mindset coach, lifelong educator, and recovering perfectionist. Welcome back to the Stop Overthinking podcast. I have a guest with us today. Uh, Her name is Courtney Edwards, and I'm going to let her introduce herself and the topic that we're going to bring to you today. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, my name is Courtney Edwards. I am a a certified coach, uh, former psychotherapist turned certified coach, and that might be an important note um, because I work from a couple different avenues, one being traditional Western psychotherapy, uh, the other being a uh, certified coach and relationship coach with uh, some interests in meditation. And so to kind of whittle that down into a more succinct statement, I provide life, behavioral health and relationship coaching. Uh, I teach meditation. I also have a podcast called Pragmatic Alchemy Podcast, and I'm an adjunct instructor. Uh, so I teach in a counseling education program in the state university here in New York um, for future mental health and school counselors. Aside from all of that, I am a married person for the second time. So I have a feeling that some of my uh, past experiences in relationships will come into this conversation. Uh, and I have two kids and some pets. So pretty full, active life. Um, And today I'm excited to be talking with you about how we can define and think about and reduce codependency in relationships to help them be a little bit stronger and a little bit healthier, um, but also just to take better care of ourselves. Because I think one of the things that happens in codependent relationships is we lose ourselves, and that can be a very dangerous place to start. Yes. And that is exactly why this topic was of interest to me and that I had reached out to you to have this conversation is I often am working with primarily women and it's so common to hear that they have lost themselves and it isn't necessarily depression or anxiety. So that's what brings them to coaching, but it's a now what? You know, where where am I with my life? I don't even know what I need. I don't know what I want. I've been maybe on autopilot or just going through the motions for a long time. And of course, uh, re- relationships, especially if it's a you know partnership or a marriage, is one of the most important aspects of your life. And so that is also a source of much happiness, but also some stress and the other feelings that go along with it. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to bring this topic to our listeners. Let's start off by talking about a sense of self, a lack of an inability to articulate and state your needs. There's often boundary issues um, and communication challenges um, because each individual within the relationship is really dependent upon the other person for establishing identity and helping get their needs met. So I can talk for a bit and probably will about my own experiences as a, a self-identified codependent person. Yes. Um, but but I want to answer to your your first point, which is my framework of codependency exp- 
expands beyond addiction and mental health issues to also include folks with attachment wounding. And what I've come to understand is I, I don't think there are very many humans walking this planet right now without some kind of attachment wound. And, and when I say attachment wound, what I mean is as infants and young children, I, we don't all get every single need met. And so that can leave a, a mark, so to speak, often in our nervous system. And so I've been exploring ideas around codependency through that lens of as young children, as babies, our every need is not met that causes dysregulation in the nervous system, which makes us unable to tolerate the threat of rejection or abandonment. So one of the things that might be helpful to kind of also include in, into this discussion is this idea of what an attachment wound is, right? Yes. When we look at the needs of an infant being met, whether they're emotional needs, physical needs, psychological needs, it's important to understand this uh, almost like a framework of trauma, that when we're talking about attachment wounding, what we're really talking about is what I refer to as a little T trauma, mm -hmm. right? And that is, it's not necessarily that the house burned down or that there was an assault or a war or a natural disaster, but just that, that perceived threat of not being safe. And that can happen anytime that an infant's needs are not being met consistently or that their every need is not being met because an infant is so heavily reliant on their primary caregivers. And so because adults that are having to, like I, I embrace this so much now as a mom, because I'm like, I do my best every day. And I know I'm not meeting my children's every single mm -hmm. need because I am also a flawed human in the world, <laughs> just like you said, trying to take one step in front of the other. And so none of this is any shade on any parent. I do believe that we all are doing the very, very best we can. And in some cases, there are families where that's not the case and, and those wounds are going to be more evident, but to kind of bring it back around it. So then when we become adults coupling off and getting into the world of romantic relationships, that nervous system dysregulation is still there. That scar, the echo of those, of those threats of, am I really safe? Am I really going to get all my needs met? Is this person going to always be here reliably for me? that can get sort of reactivated um, and we can become dysregulated on a nervous system level because of that. Yes. And I think the conversation has really opened up within the past decade or even the, the past generation that we're more aware of these things. Yes. Right. And yes. so there is a lot more conversation. Therapy is more available than it was mm -hmm. a generation ago, even though there probably is still a lack of providers for all of the need that, <laughs> that is out there. But that's, that's another true. Conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I, I think so. We're hearing these terms about attachment theories and, and codependency. And so we're seeing that it's going to be pretty common that people are going to have some dysregulation mm -hmm. or unmet needs that mm -hmm perhaps are subconscious as they're going into these relationships. So in an actual coupling or, or relationship, what kind of behaviors would meet the term of being codependent? Like, what does that look like? What does it sound like? Yeah, I think really it looks like 
people pleasing, except it's a very specific type of people pleasing because it is that partner. And so there would be a lot of denial of the self, a lot of denial of your own needs and inability to state what you need an inability to hold a boundary. When we get into looking at how attachment styles differ, um, folks with an anxious attachment style may display behaviors that would be described as clingy. They may be have difficulty trusting. There might be, you know, what what would be perceived as almost like a paranoia, um, but just super anxious around the relationship. And if there's any perception that the partner is withdrawing, it would activate a, a lot of those uh, kind of clinging behaviors of, you know what we would look at and say, well, that person's kind of desperately holding on to their partner. Another attachment style uh, is avoidant attachment. And so in that case, we would see somebody shutting down, putting up walls, withdrawing, not communicating, stonewalling their partner. Um, and so those will oh, kind of both show up. And then there's there's mixed attachment type, which would have traces of both of those. Um, but ultimately, what we see is a lot of acquiescing, a lot of just really kind of squashing of of the own needs, and that the the individual is not okay if their partner is not always happy, always cheerful, always invested. Um, so there's just no space for mood fluctuations. There's no there's no space for the ebb and flow of uh, relationships, you know, that sometimes do. Sometimes we feel closer to our partners on some days than other days. And some days we have disagreements and some days we're like, I can't stand the way you chew. Right. And in, in a codependent relationship, there's no space for that because there's just this, this hypervigilance around threat. And, and this idea of my partner is not okay all the time. I can't be okay. Right. Well, and the entire fact that uh, trying to manage somebody else's emotions is virtually impossible. And right. so, <laughs> the, and that's something that I talk with, with my listeners about is taking ownership for your emotions and allowing other people to have, have space for theirs. That's right. And, you know, it, it's just simply impossible to be in somebody's brain and know how they're filtering and how they're making meaning of things and what, how their emotions are, are going to respond. But it's also exhausting if yeah. you are trying to do that. And like you said, the dysregulation that occurs with your own nervous system, because you're not paying any attention to your own feelings and emotions. That's right. That's right. And I think one of the things that really happens in codependency is the replication of that fight or flight response, right? So when we're talking about trauma and we're talking about attachment wounding and nervous system regulation at the core, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about fight, flight, and very specifically in codependency, we're talking about freeze and fawning behaviors. So fawning behaviors are a trauma response where the individual is doing everything in their power to make you like them, to be very pleasing. And so it might show up as a lot of flirting, a lot of giggling behavior, being um, very passive, very sweet, being very nice. I, I don't like the word nice. I will often challenge nice <laughs> with clients and try to redirect them towards kind, you know, because I, I think that that's a, a sort of a more balanced place to be because you can be kind and set a firm boundary. But if you're being nice, it's a little bit harder, right? And so 
things that I'll often hear, particularly from women I work with um, who have sort of codependent or people pleasing behaviors is when I try to set a boundary, I feel mean I feel like I'm being a bitch or something, you know, whatever socialized language they apply to that situation. Um, and that threat will trigger the the nervous system response of, you know, fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. Um, and so, and then those patterns become replicated over time to just be now the way the person is moving through their relationships, maybe with little or no awareness that that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Yeah. And so if you are working with, with a client and you are recognizing that there is codependency in this relationship, where do you start in terms of trying to reduce these codependent behaviors? Yeah. So largely I'll try to start with some insight in helping the individual just recognize the patterns of behavior because they are often so embedded in childhood and have such long histories. It can sometimes be hard to even recognize that this is what's going on, you know, because it just feels normal. This feels like what a relationship is. And so a big part of that often is just doing the psychoeducation piece to help point out I'm witnessing this pattern of behavior and, and help people start to recognize it in and of themselves. I do try to point folks into some really great resources. Um, one that I utilize a lot for helping people understand their attachment wounding and codependent behaviors is the holistic psychologist on Instagram. It's one of my favorite Instagrams, Nicola Para. Yes. Um, and I've used um, her book, How to Do the Work with um, some of my clients to help them start to really reflect on their own patterns of behavior. Um, and then we'll often begin to explore what are your needs? How are you getting in touch with your needs? How are you communicating your needs? Um, we might do some reframing around what a boundary is. You know, I think sometimes uh, folks have a, a miss, uh, a misinterpretation of boundaries as brick walls, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to a fence with a gate, which mm -hmm. is one of the ways I like to describe it. Yes. Um, yes. Because I think that that's a really helpful place to start is being, being able to set the boundary in the case of codependency, when I'm talking to folks about setting boundaries in a relationship, it is that idea of you're responsible for you and your behaviors, your emotions, they're responsible for theirs and helping individuals learn self-soothing techniques so that if their partner is in a cranky mood or is having a bad day and they feel that, right? And you, and when you get into your own uh, acknowledgement of this, sometimes you can feel it in your body. And so when they feel that response of like, oh my God, he's not okay. What do I do? What do I do? Mm -hmm. That the response can now be, okay, what do I need in this moment to feel okay as an alternative to how do I make it okay for him? And I'm using kind of uh, heterosexual pronouns right now because I'm often thinking about my own history when I when I talk about this stuff and and my major relationships have all been heterosexual ones. So uh, so just in case listeners out there yes. are wondering, you know, this is not exclusively a, a cis hetero issue, but those are the pronouns that that I largely use when I'm talking about it. 
But yeah, so so learning to set that boundary to really be able to just take good care of yourself when you're feeling that activation so that your response does not need to be, how do I make it okay for you? And then what happens is now you can actually be a partner to your person in their challenge, right? Because now it's not like I'm going to live and die by this person's happiness, but just like, I'm okay. And now I can partner with them to be okay. And one of the things I often will try to challenge folks on is this idea that that codependency and people pleasing in general really is like super manipulative, right? It's And it's coming from a place of a desire of safety, right? The person who's being codependent or the person who's people pleasing is doing it because they feel unsafe. And they think if everybody likes me, (laughs) or if this particular person likes me, I'll be safe. But really what that is doing now is, is just creating an inauthentic relationship because you're not being your true self. They're probably not being their true self. And so if you really love this person, let's actually be more real with them. You know, and some of that is going to be, I don't want to have Thai for dinner tonight, or I don't like it when you talk to me that way, or that hurt my feelings, you know, and and addressing some of these things, that's going to give us a much more authentic relationship because now we've, we've kind of taken the mask off. And one of the traits of codependency is very masked behavior because it's, you know, I think about my own history and if I could summarize my early dating experience, it would be, who do you need me to be? And let me be her for you. Right. And Mm -hmm. that like, what a disservice to these people. Like, yes, disservice to myself, 100%. I'm going to own that. But also like, if I really loved you as a partner, why didn't I let you see me? Right. And that's what I'm trying to help people overcome is, is creating their own sense of safety so that they can be fully seen, so they can fully see their partner. That to me is a strong relationship. Yes. Yes, I agree. And I have also talked about people pleasing as being that more manipulative behavior. And I think that throws people off because 100%. It, it's considered nice, right? That work yep. you don't like. And right. in so many ways, women have been socialized to yes. behave and respond that way and be the nurturer. And somehow that translates to also taking care of making sure that everyone feels okay. Never mind what you feel, right? somehow right. take care of everybody else. And when you strip it all down, it's so inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And I think the realization for me too, is, as well was, wow, here I am really wanting people to like me, wanting connection, whether that be friendship or romantic relationships, but just really striving for that connection. So yes, who do I need to be? What kind of chameleon am I? And what do I need to do for you today? Mm -hmm. And to realize I really can't have that connection that I'm desiring because it's not the real me either. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so true. And and chameleon is such a great word because that is how it often shows up is just, you know, I will adapt and take on, you know, the shades of color of, of the, of the environment I'm in. 
you know, when I look back on my own life and I do think that my codependent behaviors uh, led to the fact, you know, that I am a divorced person. And I think that that is largely why one of my very first podcast episodes that I ever recorded before I started bringing on guests, I was just doing recording on my own. And I have an episode, it's like in the first five or six called Fake Nice. And in it, I recount a story when I was married to my first husband, we were out running errands or something. And I, you know, was greeting the person at the cash register and we walked away and he's, he said something, I can't remember how the conversation came up, but at some point he's like, right, but you're fake nice. A, a British pediatrician from the 1950s, <laughs> I think, um, Dr. Winnicott, who talked a lot because it was the time that it was talked a lot about the good enough mother. And he had been asked at one point, what makes a good enough mother? And he said, a good enough mother is any mother who can withstand her child's rage. And I think rage is a big word and we're not always talking about rage, but to me, it whittles down to that idea of it's about being able to withstand somebody else's emotional changes. It's about the people that you're in relationship with, allowing them their own emotional response and that you stay steady and care for yourself in the context of that. Right. And so, um, that to me is, is the core of the boundaries that I'm trying to then help people set. It will often ripple out then into some of the behaviors we might see if there's high anxiety in a relationship, like respecting each other's privacy, being able to spend time apart, maintaining personal interests, keeping a sense of your own identity in the relationship, you know, and so those are branching out, but really at the crux of all of that is this idea of, you know, let there be a variety of emotion you know, in the relationship itself, that you don't have to be together 24 seven, you don't have to know all the same people, you don't have to always be in good moods, right? Yes. All of these fluctuations can happen, they're all fine. Mm -hmm. And when you are, are working with someone, and so you're talking about being able to handle your own emotions, and understanding that if another person is angry or not in a good mood, right? That you're trying to regulate yourself, having some boundaries with your, your time, your energy, your emotions, as well as what you're going to do. And I think that's an important distinction with boundaries as well is yes. so often we want to create a boundary that really isn't a boundary because it's about the, the other person changing their behavior. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that is. And I tell people that all the time, like when you set the boundary, you're actually setting the boundary for yourself because we, people come to me and they'll be like, well, I set a boundary. I told my partner they're not allowed to do that anymore. And then they did it anyway. And I'm like, right, because they're a fully autonomous human in the world, <laughs> right? The boundary is about your response. It's not actually about manipulating or controlling the other person's behavior. And I think that's such a huge distinction to make because I think there is sort of a misdirection in, in the way a lot of people conceptualize the boundaries. They think, well, I'm going to tell this other person how to behave and they're going to listen to me. And chances are they're probably not because they don't have to, they're like grownups or humans with autonomy. They can do whatever they want. So that that's an important way to think about it. But I also think, you know, when, when we're talking about kind of setting boundaries, I will often say it's, I think it's very easy to set 
the boundary. It's very easy to say, I don't like this behavior. I would prefer it if you don't do that anymore. Now we have to hold the boundary. And right. that's the part where I think it gets tricky because that's where this re-intersects with all of the attachment and nervous system stuff, right? Because if I have been a habitual people pleaser my whole life and I tell you, you know, I, I don't, I don't like it when you do that and you get mad at me or have an emo whatever the emotional reaction is because I've set this boundary. Now I can feel that trigger again of, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I've displeased them. They're upset with me. They're going to leave. What am I going to do? And so that's when we'll often like recapitulate and be like, oh, never mind. Don't even worry about it. You do what you're going to do, right? Or we turn a blind eye or we don't respond to it. And so really the the magic of boundaries is in being able to hold it for yourself. And that comes through being able to really recognize your response, be with yourself in your nervous system, care for yourself, be compassionate, understand that you're allowed um, to want these things and that the other person can cannot agree with you. Right. But you are still entitled to kind of to take this stance and do what's right for you. And that part can be really, really hard. Um, and so I try to help support people on self-soothing and how to um, really just take good, sweet, kind care of themselves in the face of another person's disappointment. And some of it starts with just acknowledging that it hurts our feelings when people we love mm -hmm. are displeased with us. Right. And that's right. hard to handle. But, you know but it's okay. Like we can tolerate that or we can learn to tolerate that mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it's actually going to be the potential, you know, for a different outcome and a different way of that relationship, um, showing up. So right. like, right. it's going to kind of be hard either way. So pick your heart and it, sometimes exactly. setting and holding the boundary is, is the way to get a potential different outcome at some point. Yes. And, and I talk about that as, as well in the sense of, especially with people pleasing behaviors that it's, whether you say that it's hard or I'll often use the term uncomfortable, right? Yeah. You're going to be mm -hmm. uncomfortable holding it in and dealing with that and not being authentic to yourself, or it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation but it has the potential to change the trajectory and you're That's not right. just perpetuating the cycle anymore. So it, right. It's, it's uncomfortable. Do you want to stay in it or have the possibility of change? But I think that's our human nature, especially if you're a, a people pleaser or someone who's not in tune with your emotions that we just don't want to feel that at all. I right. just want to do the one thing that is going to keep everybody happy and that simply doesn't exist. Right, right. Time. I agree 100%. And I think that that's such a, a helpful way to start to approach it, particularly for folks who have been conditioned that everybody else's health and happiness is our responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just perpetuated, whether it's uh, as a mother or, you know, wife, even I see this with adult women with their mothers and parents and <laughs> yes. that that dynamic as yep. well. And so we've mainly been talking about romantic relationships, but in my mind, many of these can also be applied well to parental and roles, yes. but also other relationships. Is that accurate? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. And and as I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of this centered around families where there were addictions and that 
is going to impact a lot of the different subsets of a family. So there can be uh, codependency with the adult partners. There can be then codependency where the children are often tasked with making sure that the parents are okay. And, and then it, it replicates, right? And so then kids who grow up in a codependent relationship with a parent are often going to be codependent romantic partners um, because that is the sense of identity that they have been able to form. I am only as happy as the people around me. I'm only as good as the person next to me. And so there's that, like, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, just that, that there's a void of personal identity in those moments. And so then it feeds on itself, right? If you come into a relationship and there's codependency and you lose that sense of self, now it, it's a cycle that feeds on itself because now you need to get that from the other person, which means there's a lot of insecurity and, and, and then it just goes on forever and nobody yeah. generally is going to end up truly happy <laughs> in that scenario. It's yes. Tough. And yeah. yeah. And you know, we're, we're humans and we have this ebb and flow of emotion. And I think That's right. for me, just being able to embrace the fact that I'm not going to be happy all the time. And that the people around me aren't going to be happy all the time. That doesn't mean we need to be miserable, but there's right. nothing wrong with that and yes. allowing the everything from the anticipation and excitement and happiness and joy to just calm and right. Sometimes you're going to be anxious. Sometimes you're going to be disappointed. For me, it's such a, a huge just shift in my mindset was being able to say, wow, this whole human experience and mm -hmm in order to have some of the ups, I also need to have some perspective to be able to compare that. And I don't right. want to stay there, but there's nothing wrong with me That's when, right. when I That's am right. having these ebbs and flows and then allowing other people to have those, those other experiences, which isn't always fun. Right. And I think as, again, as that female nurturer kind of mm -hmm. mode and, and you want to soothe and it can be challenging for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it's funny because what, what's coming to mind in this conversation is a meme that I sometimes see. It's an illustration from Alice in Wonderland and the Cheshire cat is up in the tree and he's looking down at Alice and he's saying, well, we're all mad here. And she's looking back up at him and she goes at me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> I relate to that so hard. And so, you know, as much as I, I feel like I've made great gains, like even just yesterday, my husband and I had a little bit of a difficult conversation, something had played out, I, I felt the need to say, you know, that hurt my feelings, I need you to know that conversation was great, like, it was fine, went wonderful. He's like, I didn't realize I'm sorry, like, a plus, right? As a, mm -hmm. as a relationship coach, I'm like, good, we did good. We had the grown up <laughs> conversation. And then we have dinner, whatever, and he's in the kitchen cleaning up after dinner, and he's just kind of quiet. And I went in, and I was like, are we okay? <laughs> because just the fact that he had gotten a little bit quiet it was the end of the day. He was getting tired. like, But just I felt that energetic shift. And because we had had that difficult conversation, like immediately my radar was on. Um, but what I'll say, like in terms of my own growth, is being able to like recognize that pattern and not fall into the cycling thoughts and the, Oh my God, and what do I have to do? And how am I going to fix this? And he's mad at me and what, you know, and, and just devolving into nonsense. I, I said to him, I said, 
you okay? And he, he was like, yep. He's like, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm doing the dishes. And I was like, okay. I was like, I just felt like you got a little quiet and we'd had a tough conversation. And so I just wanted to check in and he's like, yeah, no, I'm good. And I was able to let it go <laughs> where I wasn't always in a place where I would have been able to walk away from that and be like, oh, okay, we're, we're fine. And this might sound a little counterintuitive to folks, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. I think part of the reason why my relationship now is as healthy as it is, is because I know that I would be okay without it. And that, right, like that can sound a little harsh. <laughs> I would be devastated. I love my husband very much. I have a almost decade long crush on him still. Like he is my favorite person. And if something happened tomorrow, I would be okay. That was not the part that I ever knew in the first half of my life because I didn't have that security in my own self. I didn't have a strong enough sense of my own identity to know that I would be okay in the face of that loss. And so it was whatever behaviors I could engage in to make some guy like me. Like that was literally my hyper focus from pre-puberty until I was 40 years old was just like, how do I, how do I get you to like me? How do I make sure you keep liking me? Um, because that was the only way that I felt safe, um, which ironically put me in a ton of unsafe situations. So go figure, right? Like, um, but I think what's really changed for me now and what I try to help um, the clients I work with achieve is that sense of your own, like that your safety and your security is within you. And so now you can actually walk toward a partner as an equal, instead of being in that role of, I will die if you don't love me back, which is the core of codependency, that fear. So we have these obvious uh, challenges and ways that we can then change our behaviors to uh, strengthen that relationship. And are there certain communication kinds of techniques, for lack of a better word, that you guide people with as they are learning to set these boundaries tuning into their own needs and also being able to express to their partner some of these changes that they're working through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I feel like the communication piece is sort of the, the bow that ties it all together, you know, because none of the rest of it is really going to make a huge difference if we can't then communicate effectively. And so I often start with just some really basic um, using I statements um, staying away from absolutes. Uh, so if I hear partners talking about always and never, I will often challenge that immediately um, because it's just not a helpful way to, to conceptualize of the issues. And then helping people learn how to speak from an I statement, you know, so I feel, I think I need and not you this, you that, you don't. Because what I think happens when we start a sentence with you, you did this, is immediately now the partner is defended. Right? Now, they, now they feel like they're being accused and they need to um, defend themselves. And I really like to work with the idea of curiosity, right? So if partner A is saying, I feel fearful when 
when you become silent in the middle of a conflict, right? So now that helps diffuse that accusation. It's not, well, you shut down. Now the person's like, no, I don't, you know, and now we're arguing, which is not helpful. So we're, we're keeping the, the emphasis on, on the individual who's speaking, what their true experience is. And then I like to invite curiosity. So when partner B hears that, you hear your partner saying that they feel fearful. What happens if you apply curiosity to that instead of being so consumed about how you're going to refute it or defend yourself? And that can often open up uh, a problem-solving perspective which is another framework I like to use with couples, which is the problem is a third thing, mm-hmm. right? It's not you versus you. It's not, you know, partner A versus partner B, but it's partners A and B working together collaboratively to see how they can figure out the problem over there, because that's something separate from them. And that can be a really, really helpful shift um, and also help kind of reduce that clashing because now it's not two people fighting each other. It's two people problem solving together through a lens of curiosity. And I think that that can often be a really helpful approach. Um, Another thing I'll say about communication though, as well, is there is an element of boundaries within that too, because I will often tell clients, you can be so thoughtful. You can choose every word so carefully. You can speak from an I statement stance. You can deliver the most articulate statement in the world and the other person will interpret it and hear it however they're going to. And so I always tell clients, you are wholly responsible for that message right up to the point it leaves your lips. And now you have no say in how it is received. Yes. And that can be helpful too, because I think sometimes get folks will get, well, I did what you said. I spoke from an I statement. I used feeling words <laughs> and my partner still got really mad and shut down. Right. Because they're allowed to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong or that you need to go in and fix it, but to just sort of go into it, knowing that I'm only in control of this message until the point it's in the air between us. And now I I have to release that control because I don't get to pick how it's received. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I also really love the curiosity as a a way to do that. And because it's so easy to either blame the other person for the response that you weren't expecting or even to blame yourself. Mm -hmm. And that curiosity can, can go both ways. Well, what must be going on in his head that it was interpreted this way. That's right. I don't have to agree with it, but it might just give me a way. And it also gets me out of spinning of just overthinking the whole situation sometimes too. (laughs) Yes. Um, But also then for myself and it's like, okay, well, mm, I'm noting, noticing this was the response I wanted or that I was expecting and that didn't happen. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I'm reacting this way because it wasn't the way I wanted. And it doesn't always happen in the moment, of course, but that reflection is is able to give me some pause and often diffuse yeah, I some agree. of that situation or allow me to be more thoughtful again with however I'm going to respond. Right. Yeah. And it's funny going back to the example I was just giving of the conversation that I had with my husband, you know, I sort of appreciate a, a stance of hyper communication. I, 
I'm just like, we should just say the thing, just say the thing. I feel like so many times we find ourselves in difficult relationships because we don't just say the thing that needs to be said. But I started the conversation last night with, I don't exactly know how to say this perfectly. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it. And then we we just might have to clean it up a little bit. And that I think was such a helpful way to start the conversation because where maybe he could have gotten defensive or shut down. He Mm -hmm. didn't because he was giving me the grace of knowing this isn't going to come out perfectly. I I have a thing that's in the back of my mind. I have a thing that's been bothering me. I need to put it out there, but I don't quite have the exact right words. Mm -hmm. And so I think he was then able to hear it from a place maybe of some curiosity or, or even just more gentleness and compassion yeah. of this isn't the end all be all statement. She's mm-hmm. just trying to start a conversation. And that I think made a huge difference in just how it was heard. And so mm-hmm. if you feel like you have something to say to a loved one and you're like, I don't quite know how to start it. Maybe that's how you start it. Which is, this isn't going to come out perfectly. I don't have my words all lined up yet, but but this is pulling at me and I need to air it. And so I do think that we can often say the thing, we can we can kind of clean it up a little bit <laughs> if like it that. doesn't come out perfectly. I, I like that a lot. Exactly. And especially for people who have that people-pleasing tendency and the desire that I need to have my words just Right. right. And the rumination that comes from needing to put everything in just the right order with the right tone at the right time and so much stress that can yeah, come yeah. from how to say that and giving yourself and permission to just, it doesn't have to be perfect. That's right. And I think that that can be a learned behavior if there was a lot of volatility in the home or if you've been in relationships or were unsafe in the past, that hypervigilance of I have to be able to say this right because it's the only shot I'm going to get before mm-hmm. there's, you know, explosive anger or shutting down or or whatever the case might be, you know, so really being able to you know, come back to that understanding of the attachment stuff and the nervous system mm-hmm. regulation to just recognize what might be driving any hindrance that you might be experiencing in how to speak a need, how to put that out there, you know, and if there's a lot of fear or, you know, if you find yourself getting really wrapped up in the the wording and the perfection and the timing, recognize, well, that's probably some old stuff. Is it true right now? You know, because maybe it's not. And mm-hmm. and maybe I just need to hold myself carefully and, and take good care of myself and do some deep breathing and get regulated so that I can engage in this scary conversation. Yes. As we are wrapping this up, and I <laughs> really liked what you just said about just engaging in some breathing and, and getting regulated. So if somebody is hearing this and they, they want to work towards it, but do you have any just tips and suggestions in terms of regulating your own feelings as you are starting this process, or perhaps you're just going into a difficult conversation. What are some tips that our listeners can use to help themselves through that process? Yeah, I have found so much relief through meditation practice. um, And, and at its, you know, 
simplest form that really can be just close your eyes and take some deep belly breaths. Anytime that we engage the diaphragm, um, we are turning off our sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight and turning on our parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest. And so we're going to be able to calm ourselves from the inside out just by taking a few cycles of deep belly breaths. And I um, often prompt folks, just put your hands on your belly and feel it rise and fall with the inhale and the exhale. And that's how you'll know right? if you're breathing deeply into your belly, then you're engaging the diaphragm um, just based on physiology. So I would start there. Meditation and mindfulness can also help us learn our body cues a little bit better. Um, so one of the things I know is that I carry a lot of my fear and tension in my upper body and in my shoulders. And so if I notice that I'm curling in like a little armadillo, I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> something's going on right now. And what is, what is it? What, you know, what, why am I closing in? What's making me feel fearful? It's going to help me sort of, you know, investigate my own, um, experience with, uh, some, um, with some curiosity. Uh, so those are some really helpful places to start. Uh, a, a good deep breath is never going to hurt. I promise. <laughs> I think if everybody could just breathe more deeply on the regular, we would all be, all be just fine. Um, and then, you know, building that insight, taking that, that very, you know, kind of, where do you feel it in your body? Um, and kind of building that out a little bit to recognize patterns of response, um, and being able to very thoughtfully sort of get out of our hypervigilant amygdala response, our fight or flight response, and, and assess the situation with more clarity and with a little bit more, uh, a grounded and centeredness of, is this truly a threat right now? Or is this some old stuff coming up? Do I want to respond to this? Like it's a threat or do I want to respond in a new way? Yes. Thank you. Very helpful. And so I have so appreciated this conversation. And I know you and I said we could probably talk for hours about <laughs> this. If people would like to learn more about you and your coaching or your podcast, can you just tell us where to find you again? Sure. So the podcast is called Pragmatic Alchemy, and I partner with healers, professionals, experts, all sorts of guests. And we talk about uh, inviting more mindful well-being into everyday life. And our past guests have included everything from astrologers to financial planners to witches and therapists and coaches and creatives. And it's, it's the most fun. Uh, but we really just talk about well-being, bringing more well-being into everyday life and the very practical and pragmatic ways that we can do that. Um, and that's available everywhere. Um, we have just wrapped up at the time of recording. I just wrapped up my third season. Fourth season will be coming out in early 2024 and we'll run through the first half of the year. Um, I'm on social media as at Alchemy. BHC, which stands for behavioral health coaching. Uh, so you can find me on Facebook threads and Instagram, although I'm still working on my threads game it has not clicked yet. Yeah, I hear <laughs> I'm, I'm trying real hard. <laughs> I like I post like once every three weeks and I'm like, Hey, I'm still here. Um, and then online, uh, my website is www.shineandsore.com. All one word. And so people can learn about my coaching um, and different things that we have going on over there. 
Okay. And I will put those links also in the show notes to help you because I know hearing it sometimes <laughs> is uh, not as not as easy as just cl clicking the link. So check the show and notes. It, for those if listeners are well. like me, they're in the car right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. In the car or getting ready. Where, Driving down the street. Yep. Yes. So. so thank you so much, Courtney. And Thank you. I enjoyed this conversation, learned so many good things that can be helpful in all kinds of relationships. And I think will be really helpful to our guests who mainly identify as, as people pleasers. And so that doesn't necessarily mean they are in codependent relationships, but maybe to simply get curious as we talked about and be aware of some of yeah. these patterns so that maybe you don't fall into that trap. And if you are there, some good tools to get started and take a look at your actions and behaviors. There there are ways out. And just real quick, I'll just add, because you mentioned people pleasing again. I just read a thing that said, not all people pleasers are codependent, but all codependent people are people pleasers. And I thought that was a really, really helpful distinction. And, and yes. that just popped back into my mind. So, uh, Thank you for listening to the Stop Overthinking Podcast with Kristen Odegaard. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone else who would benefit from the message. To learn more about working with me and links to social media and free resources, head over to my website, coachwithkristen.com. That's Kristen spelled K-R-I-S-T-E-N. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Have a great week.